Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Owen Ellis. The title of our message for today, A Thief in the House. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God above all, Creator and Saviour, please come and shut us in here with you this hour. Block out distractions and speak to us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to where Ron shared our scripture reading, Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. As we are opening there, the context of this passage is that Jesus has just come into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, attracting lots and lots of attention. People have spread their robes on the ground. People have waved palm branches and declared him to be the son of David. There is lots of attention. The whole city of Jerusalem knows that something is going on. Matthew chapter 21 and beginning in verse 12, we read, Then... Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of money, the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. As we read on, we see that the priests are upset about that. But I want us to focus on the words of Jesus in verse 13. As he comes into the temple and he sees all of these animals, and as he sees the money changers with their tables laid out, and he stands there silently to begin with until slowly his presence is acknowledged by everyone and everyone's eye turns and waits. And when he has their full attention, he speaks with authority. It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Have you ever wondered why Jesus was so upset about a few doves, goats, sheep, cattle, and a bit of money in the temple? I mean, hadn't God asked the people to bring these things as offerings, as sacrifices to the temple? Why was Jesus so concerned about it all. I mean, surely it made it easier to give your offering if it was available on site at the temple. 
And as for the money changes, surely it made sense with people coming from all different countries around the place, with all different currencies, to change their currency into the local temple currency. Surely that simplified things. That was pragmatic, practical. What was the problem? Why would Jesus create such a scene? I believe the answer is found in the contrast here that we see in verse 13. Jesus said, the purpose of my house is to be what? A house of prayer. But you have made it a den of thieves. A den of thieves. Now, I'm sure that Jesus did have concerns about the exorbitant rates that people were charging. But his biggest concern was that prayer was not able to happen in the temple. People were not able to communicate with God because of the presence of these thieves, because of the space they were taking, because of the distraction they were causing. People could no longer do what was most important And what God most longed for them to do. And that was to connect with him in worship. He wanted to be able to bless them. And he could not bless them unless they could connect with him. Anything that obstructs my connection with God is a thief in the house. It's robbing me of my opportunity to connect with God and to receive the blessings that he wants to give me. You see, a connection with God means life. So separation from God brings death. And these thieves, whatever they may be, rob us ultimately of life. The fullness of life here, which Jesus wants to bring us, and eternal life as well. So, you know, I believe it's important for us to consider what some of the thieves in the house might be and that they block us from our connection with God. And, you know, we, we might start considering things that we can see in other churches today, right, that um, have no place in the house of God. And maybe you can think of some examples readily. But this is not the focus of our sermon today. I want to bring it a little bit closer to home. Consider for a moment, ask yourself, Are there things that I bring into this place of worship that that obstruct, that distract, that interfere with my ability and the ability of others to connect with God? Are there things that I do in the church that could be done before or after outside that actually interfere with the opportunity 
to connect with God. We could broaden it a little. Are there things that we bring into the Sabbath hours between sunset and sunset that distract us from connecting with God in this temple of time that he gives us and that keep us from receiving the full blessing that he wants for us in the Sabbath? You know, as I was preparing this sermon, I, I, I realized that the, even this is not the focus of, of my sermon today, but I could not walk past this point without asking myself this question and without challenging each of us to ask ourselves, when we come into the house of worship, when we come here for worship, when we come into the Sabbath hours, do we bring in things that distract us rather than help us Informing our connection with God. Are there some thieves in the house in our Sabbath and our time? But let's bring it even closer to home again, even closer than just one physical room, even closer than one day of the week. I want you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians and chapter 3, starting at verse 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and starting at verse 16. The Apostle Paul, he's writing here. And he appeals to the church in Corinth. Do you not know that what? You are the temple of God and the Spirit of God. Of God dwells in you. You know, we can talk about this building, but Jesus says it's, it's much more than that. And in fact, this is not an exact analogy of the Old Testament temple at all. But Jesus says there's, there's something more important. He says, You are the temple. You see, in Old Testament times, people came to the temple to worship. But now we bring our temples with us on Sabbath when we come to worship. You are the temple of God. But a thief in the house gets in the way of our connection with God. I wonder what thieves there might be in the temple of our lives today, in the house of our lives today. What thieves might there be that are obstructing you from your connection with God on a daily basis? Do any come to mind for you? Thieves that steal your opportunity, distract you, obstruct your chance to connect with God during the week. Does anything come to mind? Some things are coming to mind. Does anyone want to share some examples? It doesn't have to be your own example. It can be something that you're simply aware of. It's, it's all right. Herb. The How many of you thought of that one? The busyness of life. Is that a thief? Yes. Thank you, Herb. Anyone else? 
negative thoughts. It can, it can even be where we allow our thought life to go. Distractions. We can distract ourselves. In fact, I'm better at distracting myself than other people distracting me. Uh-huh. <laughs> everything we try to do and everything there. Would you agree that there are many things competing for our attention with God and that these can become thieves in the house and that they block us or obstruct or they distract it? A thief, a thief in the house. Don't let anyone tell you that God doesn't mind what goes on with our minds. And Oasis, thank you for mentioning that, our thoughts. The people don't mind, that God doesn't mind what goes on with our thoughts and in our bodies. Let's have a look at verse 17. Paul continues, If anyone defiles the temple of God, if anyone brings anything inappropriate there, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. God is serious about the thieves that defile our temples. Because they make it unfit for him to dwell there and for him to bring to us the blessings in life that he really wants to give us. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul continues on the same thought. He says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Notice Paul reminds the Corinthians, you were bought at a price. Jesus says to you and me, he says, I have a gift for you. You have been bought back from sin at an incredible cost. The thief comes only to steal and destroy, but I have come to give you life and abundant life. By giving my life in your place, I'm giving you abundant life. Why would you want to tolerate a thief in the house? There are many thieves, many possible thieves in the houses of our lives, and we have to take each one of them seriously. But I want to speak to you in the second half of our time together here this morning. I want to speak to you frankly about a thief that is entering the house of many lives, of many Christian men and women and children today. Something we don't talk about much. This thief is pervasive and stealthy. This thief is often brash and bold. He's calculating and highly strategic, managing to work his way into almost every home in the nation. This thief is deceitful. He causes many to believe that he is harmless and and acceptable, so they don't even recognize him as a thief, while in truth he is insidious and deathly. This thief robs many of innocence, And robs many of freedom. 
leading to slavery of various kinds. This thief consumes vast amounts of time and energy and millions of dollars. He leads to depression. He destroys relationships, homes, and marriages. He destroys people's effectiveness in all areas of life, making powerful men impotent. He sucks the life out of marriages, out of families, and out of churches. He destroys the image of God in mankind. And yet, we hardly ever talk openly and especially in church, about this thief. We don't unmask and we don't speak frankly about how we can protect our children, ourselves, our homes from this thief. And we don't talk about how we can help those who are already in bondage to this thief find freedom. Who's the thief? And it's more than that. It starts there. It's more than that. See, we don't want to say the word here this morning. This master of thieves is pornography. Before I continue, I just want to say to the parents here, I'm aware that there are younger ears with us today. And so I'll do my best to choose my words carefully. But I want you to understand that this thief is no respecter of age. It is important as parents that we talk frankly with our children about this, that we have age-appropriate conversations with them. You'll need to protect them by teaching them how to recognize and respond to this deadly thief, this deadly tool of the devil. And as I've talked and read and viewed documentaries and Articles in recent times, I've become increasingly convinced that pornography is becoming a significant and increasingly dangerous thief in the house. This thief is robbing men and women of the power of God, sucking the life and the power of God out of our marriages, our homes of families and churches by enslaving men and women. You know, the Apostle Paul, he he encourages us to fight the good fight of faith. But how can a man who is in shackles fight? We're called to lead our homes and our families, but if we're bound by shackles, how can we lead in our homes and in the church as men? And as women of God. I want to share with you some facts about this thief. There's quite a few here. I'll move quickly. Number one, viewing pornography physically changes the structure of your brain. There are clear similarities between the brain scans of a cocaine addict and a porn addict. Don't say it doesn't really hurt me. It physically changes my brain and my brain is where God communicates with me. A significant amount of internet pornography includes adult and child victims of human trafficking. It affects the home, the family. 56% of American divorces involve one party having an obsessive interest in it. 
viewing pornography increases marital infidelity rate by more than 300%. It's impacting our homes. It's impacting our marriages. And it's touching our kids. 11 is now. The age gets lower with every study. 11 is the average age that a child is first exposed to pornography. 94% of children will see it by the age of 14. The under, this just shocked me. The under 10-year-old age group now accounts for 1 in 10 visitors to these sites. After school lets out, the number of hits on these sites goes up by 47 times. Our kids aren't too young for us to start talking to them about this, friends. What about the church? Is it just out there? What about the church? 68% of church-going men, 50% of pastors are regularly viewing it. Trapped. Enslaved. 76% of young Christian adults in the 18 to 24 age group actively search for it. Don't just happen to come across it, but actively search for it. 33% of women, this is generally speaking, under 25, search at least once a month. Studies of Christian churches show that between 20 and 30% of Christian women are in some kind of sexual bondage. This is just from last year. Gallup poll in the United States. 22% of people who claimed that religion was very important to them said that pornography is morally acceptable. The devil is doing his work really well, friends. Getting us to think that it's okay. That it's okay. Here's what Dr. Tim Jennings has to say about this. He says, porn is a problem in any dose. This guy's a psychiatrist. He's a Seventh-day Adventist. He's well-respected in the area. He says, I wouldn't tell people, well, as long as you're not addicted to cocaine, cocaine is fine, you know, a little bit here and there. No, it's not. In any amount, it's not. That's pretty direct, but I've got a higher authority than that who I can appeal to for this. Matthew 5, 27. Jesus is speaking to the people and he's setting a higher standard for them and he says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman, and we can include or a man, to lust has already committed adultery in his or her hearts. In verse 29, Jesus continues, If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Now, I don't for one moment believe that Christ was advocating physical mutilation. Not at all. So why would he use such shocking language Such a shocking analogy because this is serious business. This is serious business. 
The members of the church in Corinth, they actually lived in a seaport town on a major trade route. They were surrounded with everything that we are surrounded on the internet today. It was right there on their back doorstep, being a seaport. Everything was available in Corinth. Everything was acceptable in Corinth. You think of it, it was in Corinth. But it wasn't acceptable for Christians. Paul pled with them. 1 Corinthians 6.18, he said, Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does outside his body, every sin that a man does is outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his or her own body. Now, the original Greek that's translated to sexual immorality is the word porneia. Does that sound familiar? That's where we get the word pornography from today. And Paul said, flee from it. Run from it as if your life depends on it, because it does. Because this is a deadly thief who seeks to kill and destroy he didn't say to them, look, guys, I understand you're surrounded in it. You know, it's just out there and you're men. And as long as you don't get fully hooked or into the, into the hardcore stuff, it's all right. No, he said, flee from it. Flee from it in every form. And why? Because he said, you're sinning against your own body. Your own body, which is the temple of the Holy Spirit who dwells within you. You're damaging yourself. You're altering your brain structure. You're damaging your relationships with others. You are defiling the temple where God longs to dwell. You are destroying the image of God in man. There's a battle raging. It's a battle for our minds. I'm convinced that this is an important issue for God's last day's church. Revelation 12, 17. And the dragon was enraged with the woman and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. You know, often as Seventh-day Adventists, when we read this verse and we read about keeping the commandments, what do we think of? The Sabbath. And so we can lull ourselves into some security that as long as I'm going to church on Sabbath and I'm not letting anyone twist my arm to go on another day of the week, I'm okay. But notice, God's people are those who keep the commandments. All the commandments. If the seventh day Sabbath was the only thing that God was worried about, he would have said, with those who keep the Sabbath. But he didn't. It's the commandments. How are we doing with the other nine? Satan doesn't care which one you're breaking. He doesn't care. If he's got you on one, He's got you. And he knows that through sexual sin, he can hold people in bondage and he can turn them from God. 
The children of Israel were approaching the promised land. They'd had lots of experiences along the way, and they just encountered some great successes. The king of Arad had been defeated. The Amorites had been defeated. The people of Bashan had been defeated. Things were going reasonably well for the church in the wilderness as they approached Canaan. And Balak, the king of Moab, is getting nervous, very nervous. You can read the story in Numbers 22 to 24. He sends for a man named Balaam. Balaam is a prophet. And he says to him, Balaam, you've got good connections. I need you to come and curse these people because they are too powerful for me. I wonder where their power came from. But he said, these people are going to wipe us out. I need you to come and curse them. And Balaam did everything he could to curse God's people. But God would not allow it. God bound his tongue and embarrassed, poor embarrassed Balaam returns home. He couldn't even speak the words he wanted to speak. He returns home and he gets to thinking. And he realizes that there's another way. He can send a thief into the camp. And so he goes back and he shares his idea with King Balak. And he gives him the following advice. Find reference to it in Numbers 31 verse 8. But his advice goes something like this. Send some of your women into the camp and let them do their thing. And so, a thief entered the camp. The Moabite women started hanging around the Israelite camp and befriending especially the men. Numbers 25 verse 1 tells us that the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. And in no time, they were worshipping other gods. They were committing not only adultery, breaking the seventh commandment, they were committing idolatry, breaking the first and second commandments. This thief in the the camp stole their connection with God. This thief in the camp stole the protection that they had from God. It stole the power that they had from God. Just as they were nearing the promised land, just as they were almost home. Sexual sin becomes idolatry, breaking our connection with God, stopping his power from working in us and through us, and it holds in bondage and in chains. We're on the borders of what we call the heavenly Canaan. We're living in the closing periods of earth's history. And Satan the dragon is hell-bent on doing anything he can to keep us from entering. 
And so he sends thieves into the camp, whatever thieves he can come up with, to break our connection with God, to destroy the power of God in our lives and in our church. Friends, we have to be vigilant. We need to protect ourselves and our families from every one of these thieves, no matter which thief it is. But we can't kick these thieves out of our house on our own. Just like we couldn't tell the pipe to clean itself, Christ doesn't come to us and say, kick out the thieves before I come. You know, speaking about people who were bound in chains by Satan. Jesus, who was in the business of throwing thieves out, he had this to say. He said, how can one enter a strong man's house? And here he was talking about a person who is controlled by Satan. And so Satan is this strong man with a little s. How can someone enter that strong man's house? And plunder or take his goods and kick out that man unless he first binds the strong man. Then he can take over the house. Satan is the strong man, but only with the small s for strong. Jesus is the stronger man, the strongest man all in Capitals, the only strong man who can bind Satan and kick him out of the house of your life and mine. And the good news, friends, is that Satan, Satan has already been overcome. Revelation 12.10 tells us that the accuser of the brethren has, past tense, has been cast down. When Jesus hung on the cross for us, it was nailed For Satan, his defeat was confirmed. He's living on borrowed time and making the biggest mess he can possibly of our lives. But he is defeated already. And so the question for you and me today is, am I willing? Will I invite him into my house? Into every room of my house? Will I cooperate with him and do everything necessary for the thief, whatever that thief may be, to be bound and to be kicked out? Will I allow him day by day to cleanse the temple of my soul and to come and live with me? This message was made available by the Barrel Simothay Adventist Church. For more resources like this, visit barreladventist.church.
That was Fountain View Academy singing It Is Finished. Up next, Carly Fletcher will sing Looking Unto Jesus. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Laying aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Looking unto Jesus. Looking unto Jesus. Looking unto Jesus. the two-tip lady who loves to help make your life more simple. Have you ever actually watched how a mushroom appears? Do you know there are telltale signs that a juicy mushroom is about to spring up out of the ground? I didn't until very recently. We often see them when walking on juicy damp grass after rain, but I've never noticed a mushroom emerge in the hard dry dirt until the other day. This happened right outside our caravan, in the unappealing-looking sun-baked dirt. 
I heard a voice calling me, someone who loves to eat mushrooms and watches for the telltale signs in the dirt that I'd never known to even watch for. Someone who wanted to share their delight with me. Well, he showed me. First, a bubble appears in the dirt. Then it looks like the dirt forms a small lid and it looks like the dirt lid is a cover over something special underneath. And it jolly well is. A gentle prodding and scraping of the dirt reveals a fully formed mushroom underneath. Not a toadstool, no, a real dinky-dye mushroom. I can hardly believe how it happens. So why is this so surprising to me? I'd never really thought about it. Mushrooms just, well, just appear, don't they? But if I had thought about it, I guess I could have imagined that a tiny shoot would appear, then it would develop into something bigger and finally grow above the surface, somehow looking like a mushroom. And my imagination would have been all wrong. But the fascinating thing to me is that these mushrooms are fully formed underneath the surface of the ground. Wow! Have you ever actually wondered how a thought surfaces? Yes, just a simple thought. A thought that actually grows into reality? Well, the good book says in Proverbs 23, 7, For as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. I remember a young friend, oh, many years ago, writing in my old-fashioned autograph book, Your path lies before you, like a path of untrodden snow. Be careful how you tread it, Marilyn, for every mark will show. Perhaps I could re-paraphrase it today and I could say... Thoughts deep in your heart are like mushrooms ready to grow. So be careful what you think, Marilyn, for every thought will show. So my two tips today are simple and will simplify your life if you take action. Tip number one, watch for telltale signs of a thought that's about to break through the surface. This is how David watched. He said, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Be observant because thoughts have a tendency to manifest themselves as a physical reality. I can vouch for that. Look carefully into your heart and see if your thoughts and then the outgrowth of those thoughts actually will bring delight to others. Listen for God's voice alerting you to signs that a thought has been growing and is about to spring up. So what was it? Tip number one, watch for telltale signs of a thought that's about to break through. Tip number two, be, another word, only two words, be patient. James tells us in James 5, 7 to be patient therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth and hath long patience for it until he receive the early and latter rain. When life places you in a hard and dry place, choose to be patient because a thought that's been quietly tucked away deep in your mind may have been silently growing into maturity beneath the surface for a long time and perhaps the dry hard conditions of your life have been just what was needed to make those thoughts mature and spring into life. So watch for telltale signs of a thought that's about to break through and be patient while you think and wait. That's it today from the two-tip lady who loves to help make your life more simple.
to God's Favourite Shepherds, a collection of 39 short stories rounding out the lives of mainly lesser-known Bible characters, with many of the stories ending with a short quiz. Listen now to the author of God's Favourite Shepherds, Bill Ackland. Today's story has an unusual title. When he dies, it comes. And the story is based on Genesis chapter 5, Hebrews in the New Testament chapter 11, and the 14th verse of Jude. This is a story of numbers. Once upon a time, so long ago there were no calendars to mark off the days and years. There were no borders for countries, for there were no separate nations. Everything was fresh and new and wonderful. It was so long ago that people then lived for nearly 1,000 years and never thought of getting married until they were as old as people nowadays who we regard as very old when they go to their long rest. We cannot tell if those people in ancient times had any of the things we call in our time by that impressive name, technology. They did not have books, for they remembered everything they heard and that was said and done. So why record anything when it could be recalled in a moment? The people then were nearly twice as tall as people are now, and everything else was much bigger too. Imagine a baby, 10 kilos when born, but that wouldn't have bothered mothers, for they would have towered over the tallest basketball player on any team today. And the trees, wow, the giant redwoods of California would not have surprised them, for everything then was great and grand and glorious. We would think that the giant people of those ancient times should have names to match. Well, some did, but many had quite short names. Our first parents, for example, Adam and Eve, would not have needed a long nameplate on their house. Their first several children too had short names, Cain, Abel and Seth. The person I want to tell you about, though, was born a little later, 557 years later, in fact, after Seth was born. Between Seth and the man I want to tell you about, whose name means the title of this story, much happened on earth. In Cain's line, for example, Jabal commenced to keep livestock and made tents to live in. His brother was very inventive, for Jubal made musical instruments, the harp and the pipe. Another of Cain's descendants, Jubal Cain, was a craftsman in bronze and iron. And how much is involved in that? Seth's descendants were, in a way, even more interesting, for it was through that line that Jesus Christ came into the world thousands of years later. The first person in Seth's line of note was Enoch, born when Adam was 622. And 365 years later, Enoch was translated to heaven without dying, one of only two people with Elijah to enjoy that amazing experience. 300 years before Enoch left this world, he had a son who knew Adam for 243 years before Adam died. The interesting thing about that yet unnamed man 
is that he lived during the first 600 years of Noah's life. That means that he was able to tell Noah everything that Adam had told him about life on this earth and what he himself knew during the 369 years of his life before Noah was born. Just as interesting is the fact that Noah lived on until Abraham was 58 years of age. So if their paths crossed during those years, what a story Noah could have told Abraham. When we read about the men in the patriarchal age, as it was known, we may not know if certain people's lives overlapped and therefore what knowledge and information could have been passed on through the generations. It may surprise some to know that although Abraham was 100, 100 years of age when Isaac was born, he did not die until 15 years after Jacob was born, living quite closely in proximity to Isaac's tents. Another surprise to some may be the fact that Shem, one of Noah's sons, who survived with their family in the ark during the Great Flood, outlived Abraham by 35 years. We know virtually nothing about a man by the name of Peleg, except that he was a grandson of Shem and whose death was the first recorded in the Bible after the Great Flood. Abraham was 48 years old when Peleg died. The key point of this story is the connection that Noah had through Methuselah with Adam who spoke with God before being banished from Eden. God also spoke to Noah in that early era of the world when he chose to give his messages directly to key people. Yes, this story is about Methuselah, the link between Adam and Noah, who undoubtedly would have helped his grandson build that grand vessel that withstood the greatest storm this world has ever experienced. Methuselah, the longest living human being, survived 969 years, 12 times the average lifespan of the current generation in the most favoured areas of the present world. What a story Methuselah could tell. Now I have a, a brief quiz for you. Did Adam live for longer than Methuselah? What does Methuselah's name mean? Did Methuselah invent the calendar? What happened in the year Methuselah died? And who was Methuselah's father? You've been listening to God's Favoured Shepherds, a book with 39 short stories rounding out the lives of mainly lesser-known Bible characters. If you have any comments or questions, or to obtain a copy of this book, give us a call within Australia on 02-4973-3456 or send an email to radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au. We'd love to hear from you. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.